Welcome to part two on biodiversity with Alison Perigo, the director of Gothenburg Biodiversity Center. We will talk about setting measurable targets on biodiversity, how to have a positive impact through our consumption, and what the biodiversity center does. When setting sustainability targets, should we also consider setting specific biodiversity targets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's coming into place a lot more. Um, it's it's on the agenda, especially in the last couple of years, a lot of uh, at the EU level, at the Swedish level, uh, there are a lot of major funding organizations, um, I'm thinking with science and research, who are now incorporating biodiversity into their targets and into their um, their structures for what they want to get in the next, in the coming decades or so, especially as we're talking about reaching the sustainable development goals. Um, because several of those deal directly with biodiversity. How can that target be measurable, like a carbon footprint can? And it doesn't have a clean answer yet, because carbon, you can easily, you can measure the tons of carbon, right? That's a very easy number. But biodiversity is, it's more complex. You can talk about the number of species, you can talk about the functional diversity, you can talk about biomass, for instance, uh, Most of the mammals uh, in the world right now are cows. Um, that's more than humans and all wild mammals combined. It's cows. Really? So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's crazy to think about. So, sure, there might be a lot of wild mammals, but there's a lot of cows. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I think that really highlights that we can't just talk about species because, as I said earlier, there's a lot of species are are still here, but they're just in really low numbers. So for a company to incorporate this, um, I think it goes really well hand in hand, actually, with climate change. Uh, it just, they need to be considered together. Um, for climate change, a lot of people are talking about planting trees, for instance. And that um, in and of itself is not a bad idea, uh, but If we want to consider biodiversity in that, we need to think about what type of trees we're planting, where we're tree, uh, planting them, uh, and what maybe what the land was looking at uh, like before, right? So you don't necessarily want to go and plant a bunch of eucalyptus trees in the Serengeti. Uh, that is not going to actually be a good thing for biodiversity because they take a lot of water and that's a habitat that's not supposed to be heavily forested. Um, so a company could look at uh, having, basically lowering its footprint would be my um, my suggestion, uh, because I think, well, yeah, one of many suggestions, but I think that's a very good way to look, uh, because we think often with like climate change, we're trying to figure out how to fix the problem. Um, and like if if I go and I cut myself on a knife, I want to fix the problem, of course. I want to put a Band-Aid on my finger and make it stop bleeding. But maybe the better thing to do is take the knife away if you keep doing it. <laughs> so if there's a way to, instead of fixing the problem, making it less bad to begin with, uh, that's a really good way to think about it. Um, and so with biodiversity, we know that the biggest driver is land use change. So a company can think about what, what is my land use footprint? Um, and of course, this depends on what kind of company it is, what type of product they're producing. Uh, 
But if it's a company producing, for instance, food or clothing, those are easy ways to, to look and see um, what, you know, how much footprint are we using? Is there a better way to do this? And also, where is that footprint? Where are we using this land? Uh, because land used, Sweden is not as diverse as the tropics. Um, it's a general pattern that as you go closer to the equator, uh, you're going to have higher biodiversity. And this this ties into a lot of other um, other social issues that we have. Uh, but the countries along the equator tend to be less rich than those uh, at the uh, further north. So it's a big question of land use in countries that are maybe benefiting from the money coming in, but are then uh, losing in the sense of their biodiversity. And how is this fair and equal? So I think it's a, it's a very complex question, but I think that biodiversity and climate change can be combined and considered in tandem and that uh, companies' goals shouldn't necessarily only be measured in the terms of carbon, uh, carbon footprint, um, because that's, that's not the whole issue. That doesn't show the whole thing. And to incorporate biodiversity, there isn't a tidy number right now. There are people working on that, but um, I think that there are general, there are things that we can use as a proxy, uh, such as land use, that could be taken into account there. Do we know what the impact would be if all these species disappear? Um, the impact to the ecosystems and also so to us? If we keep killing stuff off, we're not doing ourselves any favors. Um, people often expect technology to take over and the science just doesn't support that, um, that we are going to be able to make up for all of the changes that we are uh, making to nature in time. So absolutely, if, uh, if biodiversity loss continues, we're going to see loss of livelihoods, um, especially in people in, uh, in, uh, with groups in lower income countries uh, that have a more direct connection to biodiversity as their source of income, as their food sources. Uh, we're going to see more widespread famine. Um, we're going to see yeah, a, a lot of negative impacts on the way that our society uh, operates basically because we depend on biodiversity for a lot of services. Uh, and some, I think we often take them for granted because they don't necessarily cost money and we like to measure things in money, but this is about something that's a little bit more than money. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not valuable, but it's just not valued directly in our current system. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We will not, we will hurt if we hurt biodiversity. What is the Biodiversity Center's mission? Our mission is that we want to increase knowledge about biodiversity uh, through both research and outreach. Uh, so we're, we're really facilitating research and then also uh, showing biodiversity to the public, um, education at all levels, uh, that, type of, that type of thing, and trying to make sure we have, so in these organizations, we have, of our 14 organizations, there's lots of people working with biodiversity, but they're not necessarily connected. So we're really what's connecting them. Um, sometimes you have people who are, uh, like, there's some really great uh, education programs for younger kids, 
But sometimes the teachers for those uh, courses, they want to know more about biodiversity and what the researchers are doing. So we're doing things like putting them together, um, giving people better connections around uh, both teaching, researching, and learning about biodiversity. And what challenge is the toughest to overcome when impacting the area of biodiversity? One of the things that I've found the hardest is uh, getting getting beyond um, the people who are already concerned about it, reaching a new community uh, to talk about it. And that can be really tricky because a lot of the people who want to hear you talk about biodiversity are the ones who already know about it. Um, so I think that reaching society in a greater sense is really hard. It's hard for us to look beyond us and our people and, you know, who the people that we already know in our networks. Uh, so I think that's been really tricky. But I have, I feel like there is quite a large um, passion for it. Like people, people like pandas, they like cute animals. They, no one wants those to die. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's, a, it's a topic that's easy to sell in a way. So how does a regular uh, day look like for you? Ooh. Um, lots of emails. <laughs> Today, or these days, it's a lot of Zoom meetings. Um, yeah, so a lot of what I do uh, as the director of the Biodiversity Center is uh, I'm, I'm kind of a spider in the web, in a way. Uh, together with the coordinator of the Biodiversity Center, Helene Aronson, um, we work uh, pretty much constantly trying to uh, trying to make sure that the center is running, um, keeping connections between our different members and partner organizations. Uh, we have a lot of events going on. Um, we, yeah, so it's a lot of, a lot of talk, a lot of emails. Um, but I also do a lot of, uh, I get to go to our partner organizations. Um, so the Biodiversity Center is made up of 14 different partner organizations. Um, and these include uh, some of the research organizations at, uh, Gothenburg, at University of Gothenburg, as well as uh, Schaumler's University. And uh, in addition to that, we also have public organizations like the Botanical Garden, the Schufatsmuseet, the local, that's the Seafaring Museum and Aquarium, uh, the Natural History Museum, uh, a couple of uh, animal parks. Uh, I'm not going to use the word zoos. Uh, <laughs> Um, the Science Center. Uh, so we have we have several partners, and I I try to go around and visit them um, now and then if I can. So often I'm out talking to uh, different people around the region who are working with biodiversity, uh, learning about projects they're doing, and trying to figure out how we at the Biodiversity Center can facilitate that research or that project um, in whatever way uh, we can. So I do a lot of that. How did your interest for biodiversity start? And, and also, how has it developed from the start? Um, I think I've always been interested in nature. Uh, I was lucky enough to grow up with uh, parents who were both very nature interested um, in a nice backyard where I was always being taught how to, you know, how do potatoes grow, how, you know, how to, how to grow food. Uh, my dad just is a paleontologist, uh, so he would take me out digging for fossils uh, as a little kid um, and just walking around on the beach and really always being encouraged to get my hands dirty, I think, uh, had a huge, huge effect on um, my appreciation for the outdoors. 
And yeah, grow, sort of as I got older, um, I don't think I ever really lost that in the way that a lot of kids do. I think a lot of people, it's cool to like dinosaurs when you're six or seven, but it's a little less cool when you're 17. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think that kind of never left me. I was always, I, I've always liked science. I've always thought that science was really fun. And as a kid, I actually didn't really realize that you could be a biologist. Um, that I, I don't think that ever really crossed my mind. I, I knew I was good at science, so that meant I was going to be a doctor. Um, because that's what you do if you're good at science. You're a medical doctor. <laughs> and I was lucky enough that during my undergraduate uh, education, I sort of realized that there were different paths. Um, and I ended up in with some extremely supportive professors and people along the way who helped me see that there was, uh, there was a path. Uh, following a career that was actually something that I just loved to do, uh, which was a really nice realization. Um, so yeah, when I ended up doing my PhD with slime molds, that was it was on the recommendation of a former supervisor, and uh, I think a lot of people that I've worked with over the years have really helped me see that there are really cool opportunities working um, with biodiversity that I didn't necessarily see myself. So. Yeah, it's a, uh, I mean, you never know what you're going to be when you grow up, right? So, nice. <laughs> but it, it's, it's great to kind of keep your ears and eyes open and follow what you love. So that's what I've done, I would say. So Slime Mold was sort of like your introduction to this uh, uh, professional field of yours. Yeah, um, exactly. What, what is that? Can you just uh, dig it deeper? What, what is a Slime Mold? What is a slime mold? Slime molds are the most fantastic creatures there are. They are, <laughs> you're making a face like you don't quite believe me. <laughs> <I'm> like, mm. <laughs> I, I promise you, you'll be amazed by these things. They are, um, so they're amoeba, which means they're not plants, they're not animals, and they're not fungi. They're also not bacteria, and they're not viruses. They're this other bucket, uh, which is called protists. And it's kind of like anything and everything that isn't one of those things I just listed. So slime molds, um, they have a really cool party trick. What they do is <laughs> they are these little amoeba and they're going around in the soil, eating bacteria, uh, doing their amoeba thing. They're kind of these little blobs, eating, eating, getting fatter, getting fatter. Eventually they get too fat and they divide in half. And then they're two little amoeba and they eat more and eat more and eat more. And then they get too fat and then they're four. Da, da, da. But this is uh, how they reproduce, basically. Yeah, it's one of the ways that they reproduce is through asexual reproduction. But then, um, so they're going along doing their thing, eating all the bacteria, but someday they run out of bacteria, right? Like, there's only so many bacteria that can feed all of these. Now you're up to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of these little amoeba going crazy in your tiny little few centimeters of soil. So they starve. And that's when they get a little upset about the situation. Uh, and they, they send out a signal to each other. Um, they send out this chemical signal. The first one that starves goes, oh, no, oh, no, sends out a signal. And the other ones that are around it receive the signal. And they go, oh, no, someone's starving. We're going to starve. And so they send it out. And the signal radiates from one to another. And they all go towards the middle one. They all come together hundreds of thousands of amoeba, and they create this little 
creature that starts as a slug. And it's actually, so it's a multicellular creature that's shaped like a slug. And the slug will move along to better conditions, like maybe towards light or towards uh, more uh, heat, for instance. And then once it gets somewhere that it's happy with, it creates a stalk and then it creates a little ball on the top. And in there, there's a bunch of spores, which will hopefully attach to maybe a little nematode or something tiny in the soil. And that'll move them somewhere else where there's more bacteria. They'll hatch and start over again. What a journey. <laughs> what a life journey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. I mean, why haven't there or has it been a movie about this? I mean, they should be, do like a Hollywood movie on this. That would be so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so this like is like... Transformer. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of potential in this too, so... Yeah. So slime molds are a really good way to get people away from you at a party until you actually tell them what they are, and then they think it's cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now I understand why you want to keep your Twitter name. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <It's> cool. <laughs> I'll always have a soft spot for my slime molds. Yeah. <laughs> well, to sum up, um, what are your best green hacks to contribute to biodiversity and to make planet positive impact? <laughs> um, I would say reflect on your consumption. Uh, eat lots of greens. Uh, Go having having a more plant based diet is a positive thing. Um, let flowers grow. If you're going to cut your backyard, don't don't cut the whole thing. You can cut some of it, play on it, um, but leave some of the flowers. Uh, if you have if you have wildflowers around your house, leave those. Um, yeah, let's see what else. What are my other favorites? Um, Absolutely vote. Number one, uh, get make your voice heard. Uh, that's the most important thing of all. And I think that also uh, be be aware of your privilege uh, and what what that means. Um, a lot of us are a lot richer than we realize we are. And I think that that's it's important to think about that. And with that, you can make better choices about the consumption um, that you're doing anyway with your food, with your clothes, uh, with your travels, that type of thing. Um, so just be aware of your place uh, in, in the world and how, how you can have a positive effect on it. And have um, also, I think, having a respect for other people and cultures around the world is one of the best things. The more you can learn about uh, other cultures around the world, for instance, indigenous people, uh, they have some of the most amazing ways to preserve biodiversity that we uh, in these rich nations, industrialized nations, are only just now, uh, I don't want to say discovering, but like realizing that they had a way better way all along where we're sort of trying to reinvent the wheel in our paradigm. So I think understanding other points of view is really, really important. Thank you. Thank you a lot for, for enlightening us in this episode and providing us with powerful green hacks. So now it's up to us to take actions, right? Yes. Go out, yes. learn, observe. Find out how fantastic all the biodiversity around you is. <laughs> and thanks for having me on. I hope everyone's a little bit more interested and has learned something cool about biodiversity. Mm -hmm.